Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Now Hear This is a music review podcast and is not directly affiliated with any artists or album projects discussed on the show. Think of us like your record collection come to life. Well, except for your collection of Partridge Family albums. Don't tell me I have to get happy. You haven't seen me without my medication. You got a record of your favorite songs. You got an hour and it won't take long. You got a pair of brand new friends. You got a ticket gonna stick to the end. I said, now hear this. Now hear this. Now hear this show. Behind the title of Modern Guilt is a small man, but a man of inquisitive joy. Ah, uh, you know, I'm all right. Uh, wow, that, what a question, Ryan. Well, let me unpack that. Uh, okay. All right. What is all Did right? Did you say alt-right? Is all right relative? Are relatives all right? I mean, there's many different ways we could go about answering that question. That's true. I think the way I'd like to start is by saying yes. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> I'm confused, but I feel great now. I think this is. Which I think previously I, there was some like jazz we were doing, but this is getting very cerebral. Yeah, very cerebral. If mm-hmm. I'm in North America and I point <laughs> upwards, stage right. Where where is the sun in relation to your? The back of your nail. And by back of your nail, your, your pinky nail, do you mean the top of it or what you never see the underneath? These are the questions <laughs> that I, I think you. we're going to never answer today. I, uh, I spent last night, it was, it was a lot of fun. I know you were, you were hanging out, you were having a good time. I was wondering, oh I, I put in some headphones and was listening to uh, uh, the, our St. Vincent episode, wandering around my neighborhood in the dark in the hills of Burbank, listening to both of us, like, get really bashful about dominatrix talk. <laughs> yeah, beautiful Burbank, California. Uh, guests of the Now Hear This podcast stay in sunny Burbank, California. I wish we had one of those Johnny Carson-style studios, but we were both... There's no desk, it's just two... Co- we're both Ed McMahon. <laughs> we had a Christmas party one year in the studio that the Carson show used to be conducted. Wow. Yeah. Is it preserved? No. 
No, 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 no. not at all. Good no. Lord, no. no. God, no. No, no. It's just a big barn, which is also the same set of studios where Paul McCartney and John Lennon had their toot and their snore in 74. You know, I need to go back to that because it's I remember bad. dismissing it. <laughs> is bad. it though? Yes. Oh, too I mean, bad. you get to hear McCartney kind of go, hey, a lot. Like he's like, you know, whenever McCartney's in a group of musicians other than like his close family, I automatically get the sense that he's that he becomes very performative in that space or feels like he has to prove something. So you hear him like, Who's got a mic besides me? Come on, somebody join in. I don't know. Maybe it's just because he's high. I don't know. Am I projecting again? This has gotten cerebral once Are more. Are you high again? I'm not high. I'm unfortunately very sober right now. <laughs> I am. I'm drinking one of these puppies. Ooh. Look at this I didn't know they had Diet Dr. Pepper and cream soda in one can. Yeah. The future's now. Diet cream. Zero nutrition with some of the flavor. <laughs> it's just... <laughs> There was I watched we were we were watching Rugrats with the kid. And that show, by the way, still holds up. But there's this there's a scene where Stu is going through the cereal box and he's like, Hey, hey, Davey, there's there's no actual food in this. <laughs> and that's the way I feel every time I crack open a can of Diet Dr. Pepper and Cream Soda, where the only percentage of ingredients seems to be sodium. So I think basically this is like drinking ocean water. It's ocean, it's brown ocean water that's flavored <laughs> like cream. But I tell you, Diet Dr. Pepper does beat Diet Coke. There is a small margin where it just kind of goes, blip. It's yep. like a little bit above. Just a little bit, just a little hop skip. And that's the wonder of modern technology. And today we're going to be also talking about something fairly modern, but that'd be modern guilt, Ryan. What a way to button it up. <laughs> to tie it back together i'll edit that together somehow um, that was amazing that was like a i've been playing you. a lot of guitar there's like a six string <laughs> leap yeah. you're going like you're, you're playing on the high e and you're like i'm gonna go down to that low e but it was but it was clean there Thank was no you. fret noise just flexible so flexible beep, boop, beep, boom. <laughs> welcome back to now hear this welcome back we exchange albums on this show and this week, it's my turn, and I've given Ryan a favorite of mine, really the only album by this artist I ever listened to regularly, but a favorite nonetheless. This would be Beck's Modern Guilt. Modern Guilt, yep. And it's not really like uh, a, an album of his that receives a whole lot of notoriety. Yeah, I missed it the first time around. Yeah, but I found this album at a time when I was looking for new music and open to new music. And it spoke to me on a couple levels, Ryan. I don't know if you got that 60s flavor on that, that little 60s spice. By track two, I was like, oh, I understand. Yeah. I, I should have known based on the album cover. Sure. But definitely by track two, the, well, I mean, we'll get to that when you, there's a lot of sections <laughs> to go before I start talking about the tracks. <laughs> What's your Beck uh, listening like? What have you been? Fo have you followed him at all over the years? Do you listen to the records? Was... 
What's that like? Yeah, the... What's that? Just, Don't tell me a little bit about what your back situation is. is. Yeah. There he is. <laughs> well, that, that's my bad Orson Welles. Well, um, let me tell you. <laughs> I've been trying to do an Orson Welles impression. Can't get it. Can't figure it out. <laughs> there needs to be more peas in this or whatever he says in that thing. Yeah. I, I think Beck's really cool. I have a couple of touchstones with Mr. Beck Hansen, I believe his real name is. I am a huge fan of Midnight Vultures. Okay. And this is because that must have just been the album when I was really first starting to dig into music that came, it was contemporary. Right. And hearing something like Sex Laws or Nicotine and Gravy when you're just eating bowl full of Beatles and Rolling Stones and Elton John records. It's music that is connected into the past, but fully modern production. I'd call it yeah. hip hop production almost. Absolutely. To the way his voice, he's got that lower raspier voice. He doesn't have the the higher tenor range. We're talking about Bruce Springsteen. He has like Bruce's range, but he doesn't scream ever. No. He's just always right. He's just like right kind of there. And yeah. the Midnight Vultures, that was a Tony Hoffer Dust Brothers record. And I'm a big Tony Hoffer fan just as a producer. He ended up producing some records by my buddy's band, Tally Hall. I don't know if you ever ran into Tally Hall. No, no. I think you mentioned them though. Maybe, was that the band that was recording in the same studio as Bell and Sebastian when we talked about Bell and Sebastian? Exactly. Yeah. And he also did The Life Pursuit. Right. Okay. Yeah. So here's another weird one. I feel like everything always ties back into 6-4 sound. There's like three recording studios that I hang out at. Yeah. And I don't even really make music there. I was at a video shoot for a guy named Jake Troth, who I've sent you. Yes. And they, he's like, oh, I, I brought all my friends to be the extras in the band. And... There's this girl that was playing the piano, and she had all these <laughs> had all these post-it notes up with these like devil scratchings that didn't even look like <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't sheet music. It wasn't they weren't even good. It wasn't like chord shapes. It wasn't like E or F. It was it was just these weird diagrams. I'm like, what are you, what is? This? I was like giving her a hard time. Yeah. And uh, turns out, long story short, she was very like funny and kind about it. She's like, oh, I'm a guitarist. And, like, Turns out she was Beck's guitarist. What? <laughs> yeah, Jake pulled me. He's like, you know who that was, right? I'm like, uh, no. Us Beck's guitarist. That's amazing. Ah, wow. Uh, but I mean, good on her for not uh, name dropping. Yeah, she could be like, you know, I don't know who you are, but I play in a professional band uh, by a guy named Beck Hansen. <laughs> I would be saying that to everyone. I think I would be telling every the, the, person I, when I ordered yeah. my my butter burger, whatever the fuck it's called, the Jack in the Box. I would lead with, <laughs> I play guitar for Beck. Hi, uh, I'm Beck's guitarist here. Can I get three <laughs> butter burgers and a Diet Dr Pepper? Is with what, Do you have the cream? Do you have the cream version? <laughs> Do you have any diet cream you could just squeeze in there? Actually, don't do that. Talk about not food, just a big sack of jack-in-the-box, which, by the way, for sloppy fast food, particularly drunk sloppy fast food, mm. nothing beats one of them buttery jacks. Oh, oh boy. Taste it now, my goodness. No doubt. Oh, I mean, I, and also, I mean, Odelay. Sure. 
Odalay, this is, the album has like five or six singles and everybody yes. is obsessed with. That's a fantastic album. That's it. That's all I really knew about Beck until you sent this to me because it just I, I missed this one and yeah. I don't know why. Well, I'm about the same. I think we're almost in the exact same boat on this. I really only knew some songs from Gero mm-hmm. because I liked the singles. Oh, yeah, yeah, Gero. yeah. That's good. Mm-hmm. I saw her. Yeah, I saw her with the black tongue tied. Brown roses. A fist pounding on a vending machine. A toy diamond ring stuck on a finger. With a noose she could hang in the sun. The summer girl, I think it's it's unclear whether or not on that single he's saying summer girl or cyanide girl. What's the difference? And I think he like likes the idea that yeah it could go either way to the poppy thing. But I found him, yeah, I guess in like 2008 or seven. But I was like aware of him because everybody knew knew uh, Loser, like everybody knew that song. What a song! Yeah, because it's so great. And um, but I never really felt the need to pursue it despite enjoying some of the songs from Gero and, and hearing some of those songs from Odalay and things like that. But I was actually um, on my way to a birthday party. I was driving to Scranton, Pennsylvania in 2008. And I bought it with a friend at a Best Buy just to listen to new music on the way down. Oh, the good old days <laughs> when you actually weren't just force fed every song available. <laughs> what which Rolling Stones album will I listen to? I don't know. I know. So I was like, I don't know. It was, a, it was one of those weird things where I was just, I was like, all right, I, I, I'm not going to listen to a mix. I want to try something new. So I listened to this on the way down and I was like, what is this? Loved it. Played it a bunch. Continue to play it a bunch over the years. And then uh-huh. doing this research and we'll get into why in a moment. I understand now why I love it. And it's because of who he worked with on the record, but right we'll get into that in a moment but i wasn't really a fan i'm st- I'm still not really a super fan or, or anything like that he performs and plays with jack white periodically and so my mm. my jack fandom has crossed paths uh, with him in that sense he did a, a blue room series single with jack jack is on oh i want to he's on some track on garo i think oh really i didn't i didn't know that yeah Jack plays bass on that one. And then they worked on a song together when Jack was still with the White Stripes. Beck produced it. It's a song called Honey, We Can't Afford to Look This Cheap. Great song title. My goodness. It's a fantastic song. It's just about how a desperate musician can't afford to look poor because they have to project image. And it's all about that. That's the whole song. It's fantastic. It's really awesome. Well, I want to try and hold my head up high In this busted up pinto truck conversion Between the broken concrete and the cloudy sky Well, you have to make an effort with me Can you make it look like you're suffering me? Enough gas to get us home now if we glide
So anyway, I uh, so I did a little like brief bio because I didn't know anything about this guy. So I'll just kind of walk through a bit of his history here. But he's born in 1970 in Los Angeles. So this is this is his hometown. Hmm. And 1970, same age as uh, Brendan Benson. So he's in that region, you know, that slightly younger than the the Jack Whites and the things like that. But yeah, I understand. Started coming in in that alternative kind of time, and his mo- father was a composer. His mother was a visual artist, and you know, he was exposed to just a lot of hip hop and Latin music just growing up in L.A., drinking all that stuff in in his teens and stuff. And he found blues and folk music in his late teens. And that's the stuff that he really gravitated toward. But what he wound up doing was he wound up sort of busking around L.A. Hmm. Playing folk and blues songs, but incorporating elements of hip hop and Latin music into those folk and blues songs, which is kind of the soup, the primordial soup that produced his sound that he would just ride forever. Yeah. It's all just the product of where he was coming from and stuff, which I thought was actually really cool. Uh, he was, he has no schooling, no musical training. He was a middle school dropout. <laughs> and he just decided he was going to play music forever. And, you know, he hit all these clubs and he was hanging around Silver Lake and Echo Park and just... So cool. He was like working as a leaf blower and a handyman and busking and playing clubs and just living the life, which I romanticize in my head. I'm sure it was very hard to live that life. But, you know, if you're super young and you're doing that, I could see that as being kind of fun and formative, you know? Oh, of course. Yeah. It's easy to romanticize it if you don't have to live through, like, I have zero money right now kind of thing. You know what I mean? The old salad days. So he took $8 and a guitar and hopped on a bus for New York City. $8? Wow. That was all he had on him with a guitar. I assume the bus ticket cost more. Amazing. (laughs) And he headed to New York in uh, 1989. And he lived there for two years, just, again, drinking in all of that culture and doing the same thing. And he ran out of money similarly, very quickly... But the difference between L.A. and New York, of course, is that if you're homeless in New York, you have to survive a New York winter. <laughs> right. And he had no right. family like he did in L.A. to sort of lean on if he needed to, that kind of thing. And so he was only in New York for two years, but those two years were formative. And so, again, you're getting all this culture, you're getting all this music, you're, you're absorbing all this stuff. And, you know, when he came back to L.A., Again, he hit those odd jobs again. I found out he worked for a video store in Silver Lake where he spent his time, quote, alphabetizing the pornography section, which I thought was really funny. Wow. And uh, and it was during this time, uh, after he had honed his craft a little bit and hitting those L.A. clubs hard again, that he started to get noticed by the right people. And in 1992, one of those right people got him a, a, a deal, a record deal. Mm. He had a small, small label. And he started putting down songs and demos and things. And one of those was for a song called Loser. Wow. And so it really, like, we talk about Loser as, like, this big song of his, but he he was not an established artist when Loser was in the mix. Loser predates all his, like, major label stuff. And I didn't know any of that. So, like, hmm. that is the song that sort of propelled him. So that was a big surprise, most of all to Beck, who thought it was a throwaway. And it started picking up radio play in LA on college radio. And I didn't realize this, but I guess KCRW is a college radio station or was, it started that way. I didn't know any of that, but KCRW was the one that championed the song and Beck's stuff. 
and a bidding war began with Geffen, Warner, and Capital all looking to get him signed mm-hmm. to kind of ride what they perceived to be this hip hop rock fusion sound. You know, you talked about hip hop sound. Mm-hmm. This is just after grunge. You know, even a couple years on, the grunge phase is fading. And these record companies are looking for the next big thing. And they correctly identify that the next big thing in rock would be a hip-hop rock fusion. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. Because later on, you get new metal and all that stuff. But this is way before new metal. Yeah, so Beck went with Geffen. And Loser found its way onto his first major label album, Mellow Gold. And the song catapulted to the number 10 spot on the Billboard charts. And it kind of made him a household name. He started getting on MTV. And that video is, of course, everybody remembers that video. Kind of a, like a, a sweet success story of a guy who had literally nothing but was living and breathing music and traveling the world like yeah. a, like an old rambling blues musician. Uh, oh, great! Till he made it. So two years later, Odile would uh, secure him not as a one-hit wonder, and he would score a bunch of big hits off of that and uh, Grammy nominations. And then five studio albums later, Beck is still cranking out commercial and critical success. And the next album up would be the final one in his deal with Geffen. That's the album we're talking about today, which is Modern Guilt. Mm. So that's sort of his trajectory. Now, again, I didn't know anything about this guy's career, his history, none of that. I just knew I liked this record and a handful of other songs. But I found out that in doing the research for this episode that Danger Mouse was the producer. Yes, yes, yeah. On this record. I saw that somewhere. I was like, huh? Yeah. Now, I don't know how you feel about Danger Mouse. I love Danger Mouse. Yeah, he's great. He obviously became known to a lot of people who maybe didn't know his stuff through his collaborations in the group Gnarls Barkley, which made CeeLo Green. That's CeeLo Green, right? Yes, unfortunately, yes. <laughs> you know, kind of gave, gave CeeLo a big platform there. And Danger Mouse has done a bunch of other projects, where I knew and loved Danger Mouse from is he did a project called the Rome soundtrack. You ever run into that? No. It was a soundtrack he did with some spaghetti Western conductors, people who conducted and orchestrated spaghetti Western music. And so Danger Mouse put hip hop beats to spaghetti Western soundtrack style stuff and then brought in Nora Jones and Jack White to co-write songs on that album that's cool yeah and took a you know the piano ballady thing jack's kooky kookiness spaghetti western and then hip-hop and then fused all that together for the rome soundtrack so that's where i knew danger mouse from primarily also danger mouse doesn't i I believe he's responsible for the gray album i don't know if you ever ran into the gray album oh yeah of course in college yeah versus and you're listening to that and you're like what how (laughs) you know now that i think of it that's probably Jay and Kanye, Jay-Z and Kanye West, along with, who's the, is it Funkmaster Flex? No, that's the DJ. Who's it? Don't push me. 
Cause I'm close to the edge. I can't remember the name of that artist. But there were like a couple hip hop records where I remember in college and then when I went to New York where it's like, wait, hip hop rules. Like it is really, really cool. And then it was definitely somewhere in college where I was studying music with Mercer and Chris Mercer, the guy who I do, for those of you listening who just tuning in, the Take It Away McCartney show together. He would show me all kinds of electroacoustic music and modern composition. And I just realized that all of this stuff counts for something. If somebody's gone to the trouble to make something, right. there's got to be something in it, even if it's just that person's humanity, where you're like, hey, just acknowledge it for what it is. Sure. But to tie it back to what you're saying, yeah, that Grey album, that is... I haven't listened to it in a long time. I may listen to it today. Yeah, the 99 Problems Helter Skelter mashup is worth the spin yes. if anyone wants to go find that. I don't think that's an official release. I think that's Oh, just... it's definitely not. If you having girl problems, I feel bad for you, son. I, I got, got 99 nine. problems, but a bitch ain't one. I got the rap patrol on the gap patrol. Foes that want to make sure my cast is closed. Rap critics to save money, cash holes. I'm from the hood, stupid, what type of facts are those? If you grew up with hoes in your zapatos, you celebrate the minute you was having dough. I'm like, fuck critics, you can kiss my whole asshole. If you don't like my lyrics, you can press fast forward. I beat with radio. I don't think they would have known what it was. And even if McCartney did, I don't think their label at that time would have known. Because this is still like early Napster mm-hmm. times. It's, it's pre-Spotify and Apple Music. It's when we were in college. It's yes. like 2004 or so. It's just so long ago. Three or uh, four. Anyway. Have you ever seen the Concert for New York documentary that Paul put out for the 10-year anniversary? Of course. Did you remember the part where Abe Laboreal Jr. explains to Paul McCartney what a hova is? It's no. I well, I forgot it. So good. You have to like <laughs> Abe pulls him aside. He's like, actually, so this guy's name is Jay Z, but he goes by like Hova, and like McCartney's like, uh, uh-huh, and like not really understanding what he's saying. Yeah, like Bill Clinton's in the room. It's just weird. Yeah. Oh yeah, Bill Clinton's there. Eric Clapton is there, and Paul is explaining the song "Freedom" to him, and Eric Clapton <laughs> is just staring at him like he's the biggest <laughs> idiot ever. Oh, it's great. You know, freedom. Oh, I, you know, we'll fight for, you know, to live in freedom. Yeah. <laughs> okay, guy. That's the place we find ourselves in with this record. So it's, I love how these two got together as well. Beck explained that he said, I was working on my record last year and then I called Danger Mouse and said, let's do a song. And he was really busy and he said he didn't have time, but we did one song yeah. that came out and then... We liked the way it came out. So he said, if I'm going to work on a record with you, it's not going to be one song. It's going to be a whole record. So they, it was just testing the waters at first. And then, mm. and then they wound up just doing a whole record. And it, I guess it wasn't really envisioned to be that at the start. It was just sort of a one-off collaboration. Yeah. Which is cool. You know, I love it when that stuff sort of accidentally happens. And apparently the sessions were fairly grueling. They knocked out the first two tracks in two days. But then after wow. that... They just said it was, I think Beck was quoted as saying, it was the most intense work I've ever done on anything. Wow. (laughs) That uh, he did at least 10 weeks with no days off until four or five in the morning every night. So that's, these are two guys sweating it out for the art there, but it paid off, you know. That sounds fun. That sounds the best way you can spend your life. Yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. We were talking about Bruce doing that, living in a studio and living and breathing it. That's it. That's all he's doing. Of course. Yeah. 
So I guess there was a turning point in the sessions when Beck and Danger Mouse put down the title track. Beck uh, said something to the effect of, I'd recorded about 10 or 15 songs, and then I did the song Modern Guilt, and I remembered my engineer, Drew Brown, and Danger Mouse just lighting up. It was the first time I got a reaction on anything we were working on. It just felt that there was something in that song that rang true for everyone around and what we were doing. And it felt like it was definitely a point where I was like, okay, now we're on to something. This is what it's about. So mm. that was kind of the thing that, that was the turning point for the record. Beck goes on to say, after that, I started just getting rid of all the songs that sounded like they could be something that could be on Midnight Vultures or Gero. Mm. Things that were a bit more playful or humorous or however you want to qualify it. All kind of pursuing just that feeling that that song had, he says. So that's the song that really shaped the record. Mm. That was the first time I've ever done that, where all of a sudden a song came up and it had such a distinctive feeling to it that I just had to go into that. So, hmm. yeah, I mean, that goes back to the Bruce episode too, where Bruce had all these songs, yeah. but he was just trying to do a specific thing. And so Beck right. is doing that here with this record. Yeah, exactly the same. He also reminds me of a lot of what uh, Annie was doing. Right. Annie had a thesis statement going into it. This song turned out to be the thesis statement tried to craft it around it mm -hmm. see i had no idea that danger mouse even worked on this and it explains a lot about why i like it yes yeah, same same for me absolutely the same for me he's credited with beats on eight out of the ten tracks and then the record like i mentioned fulfilled beck's contract with interscope and geffen and that explains why six years would then pass before another studio album from beck would come out 2014's morning phase which actually a friend of my other show, The Third Men podcast, Fats Kaplan, appears on that record. Wow. Uh, playing a little bit of fiddle. That's pretty cool. We talked a little bit about that when we interviewed Fats. That was really cool. So, yeah, the album's released on July 8th, 2008. And for somebody's eighth studio album, it kind of speaks to the strength of him as an artist. Uh, yeah, I run into that in comics sometimes where almost anyone could do a really good illustration of something. Mm-hmm but it's about doing them consistently good every time to the point where you understand that there is, there's a structure underneath to your understanding of how music works and how art works and how songs work and how, you know, all this stuff. So mm -hmm. there's a difference between being able to craft a one hit and to create a body of work over time. And that's what I appreciate about Beck, even though I'm not like the biggest fan in the world. Like I love that I found this later or mid-career album from him and i'm just like that's the one i like you know yeah you don't get that with every art especially modern artists no you definitely don't so yeah that's the yeah that's the background modern guilt by beck mm -hmm. and i guess from here we can I don't know, we could saunter over to the i don't know you want to go to the you want to go to the bullet corner you yes i do yeah okay good morning i'm gonna be your instructor Okay, I know you're anxious to jump right in. This is Paul's Bullet Corner. This is a place in the show where I summarize the album we're talking about with weird poetry. And these are brief. These are all brief. Very brief. I didn't have a lot on these. I didn't get too flowery. I just kind of did three of them. You know what I mean? Let's hear it, yeah. Bullet point one. The World Series of Shuffleboard. That's it? That's it. <laughs> Gotta let it sink. <laughs> Ooh, that was the first one where I've, 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 I've all spit. Uh, 
I've been like, si- it was like a drive-by shooting. <laughs> <laughs> Bullet point two. Use a butter knife. Cut me some slack. Ooh, that's great. That's a good, ooh, I like that one a, a lot. Slice. That's probably going to be the description of the episode. I'd be surprised if it wasn't. <laughs> and finally, quick, puree every genre of music in a blender. <laughs> Not wrong. That's all I got. Not incorrect. <laughs> Thank you. It's been my bullet corner. That's not all you got. You got a lot. That's a lot three. to offer the world, Paul. That's Proud of you. Uh, so, yeah. Well, like, and, I, and before we get into the tracks here, I would like to shout out a website called whiskeyclone.net, which is apparently a Beck superfan haven. Hmm, interesting. Which provided a lot of the helpful information for this episode. So, any Beck superfans out there, I'm sure you've heard of whiskeyclone.net. If you haven't, go check that out. But that leads to track one here, Ryan Orphans. Ooh. Cat Power, huh? Cat Power, yes. It's on two tracks on this record, and this is one of them. So sometimes I just like reading my notes, because I usually do these two weeks before we do this, or like a week before. (laughs) My first is just fuzzy symbols, man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a lot of those. A lot of fuzz. I always love Beck's acoustic guitars that he puts on his tracks. I would love to know not only the model, I'm sure it's on that website, the Whiskey Devil website you were just talking about. <laughs> but the, what's the signal chain on that? Because the acoustic guitars, they just sound really great. Yeah. And I guess because I'm talking rhythm section, I can never tell if his percussion parts are live or if they're programmed or yes. if they're sampled or if it's a combination of all those things. And maybe that's the point. Well, I had that problem on this record and on the next record we're going to talk about. I, with these two albums that we picked that we're going to that we're going through, I, I started to have like one of those weird existential crises where I'm like, what, what's real? What is real? What is that sound? <laughs> yeah, it's a like I, I like the natural sound of the acoustic guitar placed next to all that synthesizer sound and hip hop breakbeat stuff, and I think there's a juxtaposition happening there, which is kind of just what makes this record work and it's very evident on this track Mm -hmm. uh, as is evident on the rest of it but yeah so this is the first one that they put down this is that song that they got together to work on Hmm. that we discussed and interesting that it's track one that's not always the case right yeah they kind of went in order which is weird although although this is a good opening track for the record i think uh, with a record that has a lot of commercial sounding pop jingles on it this one strikes a nice balance where it kind of leads you in a, in a way that is not overwhelming at the start, but it does kind of hold your hand, guide you into the record with that opening, that boom, 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 whatever. Yes. We even get a bit of backwards music on here, tickle the old revolver bone, you know? That old bone <laughs> saw. <laughs> I love the little jangly guitar accents and the synth loops and stuff. And mm-hmm. So I guess this song is based in part on a documentary Beck saw about Sudanese children who were orphaned by war. Oh, that is sad. But also based in part about an American's feeling 
of being abandoned by their country, I guess, mm. from any walk of life or political spectrum, just, I guess it's a common American thing to feel like your country's passed you by if something you don't agree with has happened or something like that. So <laughs> feeling like an orphan out there. Not wrong. Yeah. Not wrong right now. But yeah, there's also that 60s sunshine pop stuff in this song and then later in the whole record which is i think what i love and i love a good sunshine pop thing we get that chorus here that if i wake up and see my maker come in like that's sounds like a damn monkeys song like that uh, there's portions of this album that have that monkeys kind of spice totally which i love i like the melody of that part if i wake up and see my maker coming yeah with all of his crimson and his iron desire yeah I'll, I guess I'll say this now. I don't know. It's probably in my notes for later. Is it in my notes for later? Am I? Oh, yeah. No, I got to wait until track four. I'm setting a thread that I have a comment on those lyrics that will show up in track four. Ooh. Suspension. <laughs> yeah. Wait, suspension? I mean suspense. I'm saving my suspension for track three. So I have a track three one. You've got a track four one. And okay. Between the two of us. We've got all-wheel drive, baby. This is a dangerous episode. I'm back. It's dangerous. That's what he does. Yeah. Is he dangerous? He is, but it's approachable. Mm, you know? Because in that danger, there is an acceptance of chaos, but also an embrace of change. Speaking of dangerous, Gamma Ray. <laughs> that 60 sound is back. Man, oh man. <laughs> My first bullet is is woo yeah. with exactly nine capitalized O's. And Sometimes when I'm listening to these records, when I'm doing like the, my notes and stuff, sometimes I, I'm like hearing what I think your reaction is to the songs. And in this one, I was, I was just hearing you say, of course you like this. Um, (laughs) Cause it just sounds like a Beatles, like 60. I feel like all the modern records I pick for this show just sound like sixties music updated. It's definitely updated. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far as to call it Beatles music. It sounds is it's like the American response to Beatles music. Surf rock, yeah. Surf rock, right. It's the stuff that was happening in California, the reverb guitars and the... But the way he pulls off that beat, that plus that bass guitar riff, Yeah. I didn't know you could create something new in that space. I thought it had all been done. And then all of a sudden, I'm on a, I'm on a run. Yeah. <laughs> We're always on a run. Paul and I are running away constantly. Because that's how I preview the record. you got to put it in your head first. A record. Yeah. You always have to listen to a record like 100 times. But does that one stop me in my tracks? I just had to like look at it and make sure that I favorited it in the Spotify thingamajig. Cause, and then the lyrics are really, 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 really cool, too. Yeah. I mean, an example is just, I mean, I'm looking at all the ones I pulled. It's, I basically pulled the whole song, <laughs> you know, <laughs> with these ice caps melting down with the transistor sound and my Chevrolet Terraplane going around and around. And I looked up what those things look like. 
they look like the the give my regards to Broad Street muscle car that yeah. McCartney was zipping around in. One of those which MTV I think auctioned off or gave away in a contest. When is this like thirty years ago or recently? When the movie came out, I think they gave away some contest oh, to, to win Paul's goodness. car from the film as an aside we were talking last night it was annabelle's birthday last night oh i sorry i just well you don't know when that is listener so you can look that up we're at a party and we're talking about how george harrison bought the life of brian he gave three or four million it was dollars or pounds i forget which one just because he wanted to eric idol says like it's the most expensive ticket in cinema history (laughs) just wanted to see the movie yeah and then john and yoko they financed some other big movie that somebody mentioned, some amazingly artistic thing. I'd have to look that up. It's a drag that I don't know off the, off the top of my head. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. And it's like, oh, yeah. And I remember, uh, give my regards to Broad Street. And everybody just kind of. <laughs> I love that movie. It's silly, but much in the same way, like you're never going to get I Am the Walrus performed on an airfield by the Beatles in colorful outfits if not for magical mystery tour i justify broad street the same way you'd never get a weird no values concert thing like yeah that stuff is really cool yeah and i i don't know i have a real soft spot for that movie. i understand objectively it's maybe not like a great movie but i i do watch it periodically the holy mountain it was the holy mountain huh. jodorowsky's the holy mountain uh John put a million bucks into. Nothing in your education or experience can have prepared you for this film. Holy Mountain, Life of Brian, Broad Street. (laughs) (laughs) Don't forget Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End or whatever. Oh, Uh, right. He's also in that. Um, Beck commented that uh, once that Gamma Ray was the best representation of the work that Danger Mouse and he had done together... He said, it's not quite James Bond, probably more Our Man Flint or Danger Diabolique. That was the second song we did. So, yeah, he's putting these ordered on the album in the order that he recorded them with Danger Mouse. <laughs> it's so, amazing. It's, it's very strange. Here's the best part. I know you pulled the lyrics for this song. I got, I got news for you, buddy. He improvised these lyrics. Well, that's okay. So you, <laughs> that's the spoiler alert. Ah. When I was... <laughs> And I'll just read the quote now. The way a lot of my... This is a quote from Beck. Hans, Beck Hansen. Mm. The way a lot of my songs are written, I write the music first and I record it. And then with a song like Modern Guilt, for example, I just get on the microphone and I write something really quick, sort of off the top of my head so I can remember the melody. And what happens a lot of the time is that what I initially sing ends up being on the record. Yeah. A lot of these things, I don't really get to spend too much time figuring out what it is. And... For better or for worse, I think that's why I equal parts am attracted to some Beck songs and equal parts can't stand them. Sure. Because I'm sometimes like, what the hell is this about? Right. And I know it's not important. Like, we're going to get to on the next episode. Sometimes it's just the sound of the record. Yeah. But sometimes I want there to be a John Lennon or a Bob Dylan or an Elvis Costello or a Bruce Springsteen style narrative where you're like, wow, this is a great story, too. Yeah. But... I also like stuff like no values. Right. <laughs> well, McCartney does that too. He blocks out melody with temp lyrics and, and keeps them too. Yeah. Like when you think about it on uh, letting go, like a Lucifer, she always shines. The fuck does that mean? Yeah. Well, I always thought it was a Lucifer diamond. That's a type of diamond. Really? 
Yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> you just explained yeah. it to me. Thank and, you. And uh, I mean, I think it's a type of diamond. I just always assumed that it was a type of diamond. You're probably right. I, I Lennon referred to it as he... Actually, it's funny you mentioned Lennon or Dylan. Lennon referred to what McCartney does with lyrics in the same way that he perceived what Dylan does with lyrics, where he takes the point of what he's trying to say and puts it through a surreal lens. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. But I don't always think McCartney actually does know what he's doing. I think McCartney likes creating the chaos and creating the mystery without the understanding of actually what it is, but he gets that wink in his eye, which tells you that he wants you to think that he does know what he's doing and he's getting one by you. Yes. Which is what annoys me sometimes about McCartney because I, I go back and I say, well, actually, McCartney, that actually didn't mean anything sometimes. Right. You're right. But, uh, you know, again, when I say all this, I say it out of love. I mean, you don't think Harry would go and do a stupid thing like that, do you? Yes, I do. Ready to do one? Chemtrails? Are we on chemtrails? Well, let's move on to chemtrails. track on the record where danger mouse does not provide the beats okay beck explained this is the song i had the idea and i had written it beforehand this song is probably the exception to the rest of the songs so i thought that was interesting i do like this track i think it reminds me of a yeah. magical mystery tour era george harrison track sure with a great bass guitar part now you didn't happen to see who plays on this song did you no, I didn't look it up. Are you no. ready to get your mind blown, Ryan Brady? Yes. Yeah, yeah, always. That's why I'm here. Greg Kirsten. No kidding. Of the Bird and the Bee and producer of and Egypt the, Station. And the Egypt Station. Wow. Oh, wait. The hits keep on coming. Okay, I'm scared. Jason Faulkner. Oh, I love that guy. Who also played guitar on two of the tracks in Chaos and Creation in the Backyard. Yes. And... This is the best one for our show. I love it. Joey Warrinker, son of Lenny. No way. Son of Lenny, right. Who also played on a few songs on Chaos and Creation in the Backyard. Amazing. And I didn't know any of that. Wow. Yeah, my mind is actually blown. Those three dudes are all on this with Beck. <laughs> what a band, huh? Wow. <laughs> Jason Faulkner... He was in The Jellyfish. Is that where he met Beck? Was Beck in The Jellyfish? No. I don't know. I don't know. There's some kind of connection, but I know Faulkner was in that band, The Greys, which had a pretty rad album in the early 90s. Basically, what we're talking about right now, listener, is that... Wow, such disdain for the listener. No, I actually love all <laughs> listeners. There's this... Disclaimer. Tw- uh, <laughs> I'm just joking. Thank you for... Th- uh, really, thanks for being here. In California, there was this power pop thing that was happening. It was also happening in New York, but I like the stuff that's happening in California more. Yeah. Where you had the Jellyfish and Beck and I guess Elliot Smith, even to some extent, is in that group. All of those guys that were writing classics on Buckley. And there's just all of these people that were rotating. Roger Manning Jr., who did that 
Have you ever heard the Moog Cookbook? Any of those records? No. Holy smokes. I'll send you a link. Please. It's popular songs, like heavy alternative rock from the 90s, done in the style of Wendy Carlos's Moog synthesizer albums from the late 60s and wow. early 70s. So every part is a Moog synthesizer. That sounds cool. It's just like shoveling sugar into your face <laughs> and eyes and ears after a while. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, and I love all that stuff. But anyway, that's really cool. It's amazing. Of course, they showed up on this because they're all still. I mean, sounds like they're still friends. Yeah, Beck said that he was trying to do something that features the drums, the idea of it being a rock song, but there's no guitars. He guesses that goes back to Led Zeppelin and other bands. Let the heaviness come from the drums on there. So that's. Joey Warrenker. And I just think it's funny that I feel like we've mentioned the Warrenker family a lot on this yeah. show. <laughs> just like a, a lot, a lot. You know, we've talked about the notorious track three syndrome. You know, they, I feel like when we're going through these records, it's really made me understand the importance of track three. Track three either makes or breaks this thing at this point because you're either invested and you're ready to kick it or you are like, okay, now's your chance to wow me. And track three is after Orphans and Gamma Ray. Okay, I'm ready to kick it for a minute. I'm ready to, I'm ready to relax, and I'm yeah. ready to, to sort of ease into the space. And it isn't all mood. You know, there's it opens kind of a hazy, sleepy sort of way, but we do get the heights of the grandeur, the sounds of the rest of the record on this song as well. You're definitely right about all that. I love the acid funk break in the middle there it's just <laughs> that 60s sound is just not as simple as saying 60s sound like there's so many different aspects of it but this record encapsulates the sunshine pop on some songs but also the acid rock which i also really love makes sense to me the song's meaning was based on quote the idea of a man and a woman watching the sunset and they're looking at all these beautiful colors that are coming from the trails of the jets in the sky the idea that something so beautiful could come from something that's a byproduct of something so industrial. So he's playing with contrast there as well. And I love that coda at the end, those psycho guitars all battling. And yeah. you get that mm -hmm. acid rock tinge and the drums crashing in. It's just a really great, great tune. Brings us to the title track, Modern Guilt. I feel uptight when I walk in the city. Yeah, another great Beck shuffle is my first note on that. You know, he's known for these like sort of lazy little mm -hmm. shuffles. It's got a spoon feel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my brother likes spoon. I never really got into them, but my brother dig them. Hmm. That yeah. surprises me. You don't even like the underdog? I didn't. I, I've never really done too much of the dive. I, I plucked a couple songs and just didn't hook hmm. me, but there's always Seems time. Seems like a band right up your alley, but well, anyway. If anyone knows my alleys at this point, Ryan. And uh, we're not talking musical <laughs> for our folks. <laughs> it's got a little Penny Lane thing happening on this. Yeah. Which I'm delighted to find out is not racist, so ring the not racist bell. Wait, I can ring that bell. <laughs> that means you're not a racist. Yay. I need to start playing my piano more in these... Uh, you really should. You'll be like the, the John Baptiste of uh, 
the show or Paul Schaefer? No, you're not a Paul Schaefer. Paul Schaefer. <laughs> hey, everybody. <laughs> I'm going to play a song, uh, you know. Oh, God. He's just like the Elliot Mintz of session musicians or something. Yeah, he's a good keyboardist, but he's also like a cheerleader, like a male cheerleader. It's very interesting. He is an interesting man. Um, he always is doing stuff like like, like that. Like, yeah. Hey, Dave! <laughs> also, I mean, that's the, just dating how old I I don't even know what the hell is on TV anymore, but I just remember Paul Schaefer... Yeah, just so addicted to the sound of his own band and just all that banter with Dave Letterman. It's difficult in show business to find delightful friends. You don't find them. Nope, you sure don't. I love the little synth accents throughout this song. He and Danger Mouse really strike a nice balance between the organic and the and the synthetic sounds on this record. And like so many of these tracks, it doesn't really overstay its welcome. It kind of gets in mm. and out at the right time. In fact, the well, only song right. I don't like on this album just hangs around for too long and that's kind of why i don't hmm. like it but this one i dig the f- best element i'd say is the riffs the guitar riffs that are calling back and forth between the vocal melody dun, i just dun, love dun, that dun. yeah it's really it's a great song i understand completely why it's the title track it's definitely one of the ones that i gravitated towards the most now those melodies aren't really counterpoint because it kind of echoes the melody of the vocal right yeah, counterpoint, counterpoint, I'm almost positive it's that McCartney thing where when one thing's going, the other thing is going. Yeah. It's going up. Yeah, the Not Brian that that Wilson. was a very good example of that. <laughs> but like Blackbird is a good Blackbird singing in the dead of night. Or Hello, Goodbye. Hello, Goodbye, Hello, Goodbye. Hello, Goodbye, Hello, Goodbye. Oh, yeah, yeah. Hello, Goodbye. Hello, goodbye. The melody goes up and the left hand's going down. Huh. You need a piano corner? Or is it it's just the piano's in the room? We were talking about a science corner for you, right? Still Ryan, not you gotta, racist. You gotta, <laughs> you gotta find yourself a corner, my dude. What's going on? I can I, I guess I can start illustrating musical things just on the keyboard, but like a drunken uncle that doesn't really quite understand what he's talking about. Maybe that'll people will find that interesting. Well, the drunken uncle of podcasting has spoken, and that brings us to track five, Youthless. Youthless. There's a bottomless pit that we've been climbing from. It's just a kid on level ground. Shake your seasick legs around. It went on a local town. Signs of life and stop and flickering. Need a bed to lay my body down. Then with the carry down. Static is lulling me to sleep. Hang your clothes on a chain link fence. I like this one. By this point in the record, the similarities in the track's production makes them all kind of start to feel like part of a piece. Yeah. And even though I haven't really listened extensively to other Beck albums, like I've listened to this one, I feel like you can't really pluck a song out of this record and put it in another album. It just feels like one big piece, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. I do like that 8-bit sound thing. I guess he had a flirtation with nintendo core i guess what it was called or something like that that 8-bit midi kind of sound effect thing i don't really know if there's a technical name for that at all but indie rockers were really loving that shit around the middle of the 2000s oh yeah there's a lot a lot of that i picked an album for season three which 
plays with it a lot. It was a single, which I think is strange, actually, kind of puzzling, because I think there's better, catchier songs on the record, but it was a single. And the name Youthless was also what Beck called an early band of his, which played Dadaist-inspired freeform mm. events at L.A. coffee shops in the late 80s. So I guess this, this potentially is a throwback to the name of that band, which I think is funny. And, yeah, I don't have too much more on this stuff. I like the little snaps and the claps and the scratches and all that shit. I think it's, you know, it's fun. I, I guess they're programmed into a keyboard and sort of played, I would assume. It sounds like that. It's, it's There's a lot of kisses from synthesizers on that track. Yeah. And I love that line. There's a bottomless pit we've been climbing from just to get on level ground. Yeah. Like, oh, good God, what a horrifying <laughs> image. It reminded me, without, I mean, Sans just really cutting lyrics like that. This one reminded me a bit of press to play and that sort of stuff where the natural is being presented in a way that feels unnatural or like a machination, uh, which I like. I like that stuff. Mm-hmm. So do I. It brings us to track six here, Walls, a song I always forget is on this album. Not terribly memorable, but it's it's not bad. You know, I don't I don't hate this one. You know that we're better than that. Some days are worse than you can imagine. On the B side of the album, because is it, I think it's split five and five. Four of the five tracks are my favorite tracks on the record. Wow. I'd say Gamma Ray and Modern Guilt on the flip side were like, yes, 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 yes. But then you hit Walls, Replica. It's, you're just like, wait, what? Yeah. This is when I was like, oh, okay, Paul really sent me one where not only did I not know it existed, but despite some of the reviews I've seen, because there's other higher rated and regarded Beck albums. Like, this is a very solid record. And I'm surprised he hid some of this stuff on the B-side. I I feel the same way. It it ramps up at the end. It doesn't ramp it down. It ramps up, yeah. And that's why when you're saying, oh, track one was recorded first and track two was recorded second, it's like, well, you could have put some of this stuff in other places. Yeah, it's... Yeah. I don't know if there's some kind of sample in there in the background, but the track is really cool. And the chorus is nice. You know, they say a good song, you can have produced like this, or you can just play it on an acoustic guitar or even a ukulele or a keyboard or something. And this has that to me. It's like, wow, this is really well constructed. Yes. Yeah. It's a co-write, actually, with Danger Mouse. Oh, okay. The the only co-write on the record. And presumably, Danger Mouse brought the beat to Beck. And yeah, like you're saying, it does have like a sing-songy almost quality to it. Like you could bust out the acoustic guitar it's great it's great it. great record i love at the abrupt stop at the ending the last little verse there you're wearing all your years on your face i love that you're wearing all your years on your face got a tombstone to fall into place and your oh. heart only beats in a murmur but your words ring out just like murder and then great. it cuts off right at the end of that syllable great for great great that's why i was like good gracious yeah yeah, and that's that's what takes me by surprise with this album. I think there is a lag in the middle, like you say. It almost like it starts real high and then like a shitty mattress. Like there's like it sort of hangs down a little bit or it can't 
quite support the weight of some of those middle tracks, but then on the end, it just skyrockets. Yeah. It's the exact opposite problem of the St. Vincent record we talked about, where that album starts real strong, and then at the end, it kind of doesn't know when yeah, to stop. Yeah, kind of a couple of them, you're like, eh. Peter's out and doesn't. Mm-hmm. So in the end, I, I mean, there's just enough tracks on here where I'm just like, wow, yeah, why isn't this regarded as like a classic album? Like, there's enough tracks on the back where it just, you're just like, what? But uh, this is another song with Cat Powers uh, contributing vocals. And um, yeah, an- another great shuffle. So that brings us to track seven, the song I actually don't like on the record, which is Replica. Okay. This is another one of my highlights where really? I actually love that scattered percussion okay. chaos. It just works. It reminds me of modern. It's not classical music. It's the stuff that the classical guys call modern music, modern orchestral music. It just reminds me of that for some reason. And I don't know. I like the... It's got to be some kind of a nod to Blade Runner with Replicant, Replica. Oh, yeah. yeah, could be. I don't know. I didn't really, um, I couldn't really find a lot of description of this song from Beck. The only thing I found was that Beck described Danger Mouse's beat for this song as very challenging and agreed that he never would have written to this type of music without yeah. Danger Mouse. So this is the kind of song where you only get from that collaboration. Exactly how I you know, feel about it. Like right, that's I, I like that he pushed him into this new realm. Do I want an album of this? No way. Right. <laughs> no way. Is this the song I'm putting on first? Now it'll probably be Gamma Ray or Walls or something like that. But very cool that he went for it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I looking at it through that lens, I do. I can appreciate it. It's just to me, it kind of overstays its welcome and it noodles a little. And sure. And especially on an album with so many pop jingles on it, you get this like electro rock, like experimentation kind of fit in the middle of it. It's just frantic. It just wears on my ears a little bit. I, you know, we talk about ear fatigue sometimes. This one gives me a bit of that, but Mm -hmm. definitely cleanses the palate in time for Soul of a Man, track eight. Now here's a fucking tune. <laughs> I'm obsessed with this one. Yeah, great, great tune. And this enters into the last, this one, the next track, and the end of the record. That's like a boom, boom. It's just like a yeah. boxer just letting letting yeah, letting out. Great lead guitar tones. Actually, one of my notes is, I guess you love this, right, Paul? <laughs> I do. It's a driving rock and roll song, you know? It's And in fact, actually, this one and a couple of these last couple tracks here sound like Cars records to me. They sound like the Cars. They do. They really, really do. Yeah. <laughs> um I guess I could see it, you know, like I was, I actually wrote here, I could see it humming along a little faster and pop an Ocasek vocal on that son of a bitch and drive that shit up to the starting line. Like that's where I was just feeling like 
yeah, this this does have that new wavy kind of feel to it. But I love the backwards bits and the electric guitars and those drums and man, it's just. And then you get, of course, because it's a Beck song, you get a random acoustic breakdown somewhere <laughs> that comes out of nowhere. Yep. I laughed out loud in verse two where he says, call a doctor, call a ghost, <laughs> put fire into your bones, sick a dog on all you know, cut it loose before you go. I'm like, I don't know what that means and I don't care. Yeah. And that's when the Beck top of the dome lyrical ability is great. Sure. Yeah, I pulled out beat my bones against the wall, staring down an empty hall, deep down in a hollow log, coming home like a letter bomb. Cold was the storm that covered the night. Makes you know, sense. It's fun little stuff. And following the blues thread, Beck was apparently a fan of Blind Willie Johnson. Of not, course. Not to be confused with Blind Willie Mactel, one of Jack White's heroes. Johnson has a song called The Soul of a Man, which similarly asks, I want somebody to tell me, answer if you can. I want somebody to tell me what is the soul of a man. So, you know, I guess he's pulling from some of his childhood stuff with this record. And I guess that stuff just kind of gets ingrained in you at a certain point. Maybe, maybe you start channeling it without even realizing. Yeah. Well, want somebody to tell me, answer if you can. Oh, somebody to tell me that whatever the soul of a man I'm going to ask the question, please answer. But yeah, that leads into um, track nine here, Profanity Prayers. Probably my favorite song on the record. It's up there for me also. Same. Back in that 60s scene. Yeah, maybe my favorite song. Just that funky beat with the sloppy guitar and... The lead, again, just the guitar lead work. It's a really good guitar album, this whole thing. Yeah, it's very hooky, uh, catchy licks. Just everything I want out of a rock song in this one. Profanity prayers. <laughs> mm-hmm. In a cast iron cage, you couldn't help but stare like a creature with the laws of a brothel and the fireproof bones of a preacher and your lingo coined from a sacrament of a casino on a government loan with a guillotine in your libido. Mm. Who's going to answer profanity prayers? <laughs> Well, I had to look it up. I'm like, what does that mean? And I guess a profanity prayer is a prayer without a religious purpose, which is why they end up unanswered. Huh. Yeah. Did not know that. That's all I could figure out. Like when you're, I couldn't give you an example, but I guess it's something like, I don't want to use the, we've offended some people previously, but you say like, dear God, like, you know, then you say something like, it's just a profanity. It's not. You're not saying like, dear Lord, please. Right, 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 right. Let my hand heal so I don't lose it to gangrene or something like that. You know, sure. that's like a real prayer. Right, right, right. That, now that is a real prayer. I mean, No, not in California, but if yes. You're, if you're in danger of the gangrene, then, then shit gets real. 
yeah, I guess I interpreted it something like that. Like, uh, you know, swearing up at the sky, Jesus Christ, like that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, that's, I don't know, I have much more to say, but I just love it. Just go yeah, listen to great. Profanity Prayers. It's a really yeah. good fucking song. It's really awesome. And that leads us to the end of the album here, Volcano. It's a really cool hip hop kind of thing, kind of vibe, good end for the record. Love the chorus. Great closer, yeah. I'm tired of evil. <laughs> and then sometimes it says, it sounds like he's saying, I'm tired of people, which is kind of fun. It's not really an up way to end the record because I guess the point of the character in the song is contemplating suicide saying that I heard of that Japanese girl who jumped into the volcano. Was she trying to make it back, back into the womb of the world? And what that's Mm. referring to is a Japanese girl did jump into a volcano in 1933 to kill herself. And it led to over a thousand copycat suicides in three years. Oh my God. And that volcano Mount Mihara now has more security, but it's still um, referred to as the world's most romantic death spot. So I guess, yeah, there's a volcano where people can hurl themselves into it to kill themselves in Japan. Great. Good to know. That's pretty wild to me. Great way to end a record, too. Yeah. Really cool. And, uh, yeah, I guess we can leave it there. It's a great album. Um, I'm kind of bummed he's a Scientologist. Love that music, though. Thanks, everybody, for joining us on this record. Thank you, Ryan. This is my last record contribution of the season, and you know I'm happy we uh, ended with this one because I for for my records anyway because I loved it uh, and uh, happy to share. It's it with really you. great. I'm glad you gave it to me. Did you want to talk any reception? Oh, reception! I reception. Gentlemen, you've just recorded your first number one. Wow! An award statue! Oh, it's a Grammy! Yes, this is a number four record on the U.S. Billboard Top 200. Number two in Alternative, number two in Rock Albums, number one on the Tastemaker chart. And it charted in a bunch of other countries, too. Uh, Number nine in the U.K., four in Canada. Top 20 in Australia, Belgium, Sweden, slew of other chartings worldwide. This was Beck's first ever Top 10 album in the U.K., and uh, year-end reviews were very favorable for the record. Rolling Stone placed it at number eight of the year overall. Q placed it at number 23. And critical reception was kind of a mixed bag. It got four out of five stars from all music, uh, which was one of the nicer reviews. And Pitchfork gave it a seven out of 10, four out of five stars from Rolling Stone. Pop Matters kind of took a dump on it, and The Guardian called it a vanity project. I don't agree with that. I just think it's an artist, you know, trying something interesting and i guess you could look at it and go well was he just capitalizing on danger mouse's newfound success at that time trying to ride the wave of a popular sound i i don't know i don't really think so because beck's Beck's stuff always has that hip-hop infusion anyway it's just sometimes it's the label they're like oh we'll put you with this producer or you'll do this or i don't know people float around and sometimes i have this whole theory I guess more of a hypothesis than a theory. Theories are proven, right? Or at least there's evidence for them. 
I think you get like five years. I think you get five, six years in the heat. Then mm. everything else is just sort of secondary. Sure. And very rare. That's why I think things like even wings are so weird and rare. Or when William Shatner, for example, can have this second coming because of Boston Legal and he become, <laughs> you know, you're Shatner and then you're a joke forever. And then you're Denny Crane and it's really funny. I think I think those are really, really rare. But like, I don't hear about Danger Mouse at all anymore. Like at all. Yeah, not much. I, when I ran into this again, I was like, oh, oh yeah, I remember that. I wonder what he's doing. And I, but I didn't bother to look up. You think of Will Ferrell's, his Anchorman era, where it was like all these great movies one after another. Also like Eddie Murphy had that. And then like everything is trash afterwards. Or maybe that's just because I was a kid or younger right. when you intersect with their <laughs> newfound fame. I don't know. It's just I don't know, something I think about. Everybody loves a success story. They love propping people up. And I've noticed a rhythm to that, especially with something like the Grammys. And by the way, this album was nominated for Best Alternative Album at the 51st uh, Grammys, but it lost to Radioheads in Rainbows, probably rightfully so. That's a good record. But um, <laughs> I have noticed with the Grammys, they love propping somebody up and they love reaffirming their own taste by doing the same thing the next year. Yeah. And then at that point, it's like, okay, well, we'll give you a song nomination now. And then maybe the year after that, it's like, or maybe they won't do it. Or I feel like there's those awards and those kinds of accolades are often very self-serving to the people giving them anyway. Totally. So I take all that shit with a grain of salt. And if you like something, you like it. And I like this record a lot. I don't really care that it's not terribly like known from him. I just, it's the only record of Beck's that ever spoke to me. And I think that counts for something, you know, I pulled this from my notes, but not my notes for the podcast. I read a lot of books and I like, I'll like make notes of the book if I really like it. So I don't have to reread the book. I can go back to it. (laughs) And what you're describing is in this book called super thinking, the big book of mental models, which I highly recommend if you're interested in, just expanding your mind at all. It's called the Lindy effect. Hmm. And so this is... Lucky Lindy. (laughs) Inertia in beliefs and behaviors allows entrenched ideas and organizations to persist for long periods of time. Think of Shakespeare or think of the Beatles. So for something to even to get to that height is statistically really, really rare. Hmm. But then the more popular and the more inertia something has... People are just used to it. And they're like, oh, yeah, that great thing. And I read in, uh, what book was that? It was the book on Motley Crue that that one journalist wrote. I'd have to look that up, too. Talks about how there's three levels of entertainment, and they're all connected, right? And so you can't see me doing this, but imagine like three hamster wheels or three chains or something, like circles connected. Yeah. You go go around and around on the the first level. You rise up and you build an audience, you release something, and then maybe you fall back down and you're constantly doing that. And maybe you're lucky and you get signed or you get, a, get exposure, you get money, and you're, you're going up and releasing things in that second wheel. But then the rare people that get into that third wheel, you can't ever get out of it. Like you get up to the third one, you're stuck in it. Huh. And you just go round and round releasing stuff, and then it becomes about the game more than about the art. And that's what... At least the Motley Crue guy said, like, that's what led us to kind of blow ourselves up with alcohol and cocaine and stuff. I'm like, well, that's kind of cool, too. But, you know, yeah, you think of it like 
is Shakespeare that good? Are the Beatles that good? Are the Rolling Stones that good? Uh, I mean, I think so. They make me feel something. Yeah. But like, what what does randomness have to do with some of that? Like, I don't know. It's it's this is heavier than this podcast, but yeah, it's, uh, interesting. You bring some of that stuff up. Well, you just have to be true to your taste, and you know, everybody always assumes that I that I like music just because my dad liked it or friend liked it or something. Well. Yeah, I guess that was how I got exposed to it, but it doesn't mean I was going to live there, and I decided I wanted to live yeah. there. So, I don't know. It's just be true to your taste, I guess, out there, folks. Yeah, be true to your taste. You know? Enjoy it. Good way to end it. Enjoy those sandwiches. Enjoy every one of those. Enjoy every sandwich. Ah, enjoy every sandwich. <laughs> and I'm going to enjoy our next sandwich next episode. But until then, goodbye. Goodbye. (laughs) Bye-bye. Do you have an opinion about the album we discussed today? Contact us at at nowhearthispodcast on Instagram, at nowhearthispod on Twitter, facebook.com slash nowhearthispodcast, or email us at nowhearthisofficial at gmail.com. See you next time. I don't even know if that thing about counterpoint was right. Well, hey, Ryan. Hey, Paul. How are you? Well, I'm good. I'm here to tell the listeners that if they'd like to contribute mm. to help keeping these Now Hear This episodes coming, well, they can donate featuring the wonderful new donation technology boop, 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 that boop, boop, boop. ACAST has developed for us. That's right. ACAST has helped us out. They host the show. Yeah, our hosts, Acast, have made it really easy to donate to the show. They have an Acast supporter feature, and there's a link in the show description that you can follow to kick a couple bucks for the show. It can be five bucks, a hundred bucks, less than a dollar. We don't care. Yeah, just something to keep the lights on. It's all out of pocket, and we do this out of love, and that's it. And we love you all for listening. Thank you very much for doing that. Couldn't said it better myself. Okay. All right. Well, bye then. <laughs>